greetings everyone and welcome to Display Week 2020. Uh, I'm Brian Berkeley, uh, one of your SID past presidents and uh, on behalf of both SID and Nanasys, I'm your host for interactive discussions this week as we have conversations with key display industry movers and shakers. Today, uh, we're speaking with Dr. Ewan Smith who comes to us from the United Kingdom. Uh, Dr. Smith is a technologist specializing in photonics, displays, imaging, algorithms, and web technologies. He has over 20 years experience in these industries and is an author uh, on over 160 patents uh, covering everything from OLED driving, optics, image processing, uh, and touch technologies. Uh, Ewan and I are fellow experts on the IEC Displays Standardization Committee, which is TC110. Uh, he is the lead author of a distinguished paper being presented this week at SID 2020, which is paper 50.2, 50.2. It is a landmark publication uh, related to the evaluation of electronic display color capability, and I can't wait to talk about it, and in fact, we'll do so in just a moment. First, Ewan, thanks so much for joining us today, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, and many thanks for the very kind introduction. I'll start off first. You're working at uh, a company called Captivo. Uh, please tell us a little bit about what Captivo does, uh, uh, your role at the company, and uh, how you've gotten involved with SID. Sure. Uh, I mean, the, the company's got a very long and checkered history, like a lot of uh, startups. We, we've been through a few pivots through the years until we actually found something that clicked and worked. So we started off you know, right in SID's ballpark. Um, we were doing miniature holographic speaker projectors. So small laser projectors, things small enough to sit in the palm of your hand. Uh, very cool technology. And we did a lot of great things along the way. We had a little processor that could do 5,000 2D FFTs per second, um, MEMS-based SLM devices, a whole lot of really cool display tech, which unfortunately didn't sell. So in the process of doing that, we developed a touch technology, all optical touch, and so when we kind of stopped working on the projector, we started working on the touch, and that led through to uh, education and doing touch screens in classrooms. Um, and what happened was, is that we've got a base here in Cambridge and a base in California. And uh, we had these interactive whiteboards on our office walls all over the place. And so we should be using them for interacting with each other, right? You know, we know how they work. Uh, but we couldn't be bothered. You know, it's too much effort to turn the things on and get them talking to each other, and it just never worked. So instead, you draw something on a whiteboard and take a picture of the phone and send it. And we just thought, we're a bunch of optics guys, right? We should do better than this. So we pivoted again, and we started to develop a basically a whiteboard camera. Um, we did the initial development, did a Kickstarter project. It was successful, launched, and we've ended up pivoting the whole company in that direction. So it's quite quite a long shaggy dog story as to how we got to where we are. But basically, it was frustrations with how the current technology works, and all we really wanted was something to do a better job of taking a picture uh, of a whiteboard, so you can share visual ideas. So that's what we do. Well, thanks for that. It, it's always interesting to trace uh, the evolution of small companies. Uh, Nanasys itself is still a small company, um, uh, but the ones that are successful then eventually find a path, and uh, it, it's just so fascinating to uh, see how that path works itself out in the end. Um, now, if we take a moment to talk about the world's current situation, 
COVID-19 has certainly changed the way that SID is presenting its conference this year. Um, how has the pandemic affected you personally and how has it affected Captivo? Well, um, I mean, how has it affected the company Captivo? Funnily enough, a sort of small company made up entirely of geeky engineers who probably have more of a preference for less social interaction anyway, don't seem to have much of a problem of switching to working entirely remotely. So, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't think we've ever worked harder and got more done in a short period of time. So, you know, we've, I think with a lot of people, we've switched to remote working really easily and actually found that often it works better. Not completely, we still miss some interaction, some sparking of ideas, but in terms of getting the job done, it's actually been very positive. And because we work on remote collaboration tools, you know, it's, it's been very positive for the business. Personally, um, I, there's lots of things I miss. Music, I see pianos and guitars and things surrounding me. Uh, in particular, I miss making music with other people. But, you know, broadly speaking, I think it's just a question of getting on with the new normal for the time being. Well, it's, it's an adjustment for everyone. Um, I want to turn to the topic of color metrology. Uh, I'm curious to know how your work got you involved in the concept of color metrology, uh, which is one of the focal points of our discussion today. Sure. So really, I got started in that on my previous job. So I used to work for Cambridge Display Technology. So that's one of the early OLED pioneers. I started working there about 2000. And I was uh, straight away had to learn about color metrology. We were, I was brought in to be CDT's representative on this collaborative project. Um, and one of the other people involved in it was Lou Silverstein. So he was a consultant for that project. So I learned a huge amount about color and about the reproduction of color at that time from Lou, actually, and from a lot, of the, a lot of the stuff he was contributing to that project overall. So from there, I became the CDT company expert. And when the uh, IEC uh, Displays um, Technology Committee started and the OLED group working group started, I uh, was brought into that and I kind of ended up being stuck there or thereabouts for some time. So I don't actually work on color reproduction in my day job any longer. We don't do any of that at Captivo. We did in the early days, but we don't any longer. So it's really in, in my own time, which I'm doing the work as uh, sort of contributing to the IEC and working with some of the experts in the paper, uh, like John and Carl and so on, to uh, sort of develop these standards. Well, let's... Let's talk about your paper, which, although you're not directly involved in color with your day job, nevertheless, uh, paper 50.2 uh, is uh, just an incredible uh, job on the part of you and your co-authors. Uh, it's a great honor for you and them uh, to be selected for distinguished paper recognition. Uh, that designation, I'm on the program committee, that designation is given to only 5% of all papers. Um, it's very well deserved uh, because your paper gives a completely new way and frankly a more complete way of evaluating the color capability of electronic displays. Uh, additionally, I'll point out now that there is an expanded version of this paper that was just published in the journal of the SID, which is SID's most prestigious peer-reviewed publication. Can you give us an overview of the paper that you're going to be presenting this week? Sure, and, and first of all, thank you for your kind words. It's very generous of you to say, uh, say all that. Um, so the paper really expands on the work of Dr. Masaoka and others, um, who originally developed this C-Lab gamma rings plot. 
and it's a tr which is a transform of a C lab into a 2D space. Everybody's used to using the CIE 1931 chromaticity diagram to describe the colors a display can reproduce. But the problem is that while it was an okay approximation to use in the past, it isn't now. Its use was based on a whole bunch of assumptions, particularly that of additivity, which often just don't hold anymore. Colors intrinsically three-dimensional, not two-dimensional. But the problem is the 3D chart, like C-Lab, C-Lab's what's recommended by the CIE for sort of testing displays and so forth, it's hard to communicate a 3D plot. You know, all you can see is one two-dimensional projection of it. You've got to rotate it, you've got to look from different directions, and it's hard to compare one gamut to another. And I think that's one of the reasons why people still stick to the 1931 chromaticity plot. They know what it is. Uh, it's easy to draw, it's easy to communicate in a 2D format. The beauty of the gamut rings plot, we found, was it reduces a lot of information in the 3D C-Lab gamut plot to a clear and accurate 2D plot. It's got much more information in it than the chromaticity diagram has. It doesn't show absolutely everything in the 3D plot, but it really does show everything that matters, and in a clear and accessible way. In the paper, we explore this through analysis of some real measured and synthetic display gamuts. Three in the symposium paper, and in the JSID paper, we expand that with a bulk analysis, looking at thousands of simulations and uh, hundreds of measurement, uh, measurement points. And we think, importantly, the code to generate this diagram, because the algorithm behind doing it isn't trivial, uh, we've made open source and made publicly available on GitHub. So anybody can download the code and use it to generate their own plots. I think we've become so accustomed to looking at those 1931 and 1976 uh, chromaticity plots that a lot of people think of color as two-dimensional. But in fact, C-Lab uh, is very much three-dimensional. Uh, it's, it's a three-axis uh, system. And so maybe it would help uh, us to understand if you could explain about the limitations of 2D color representations and how your work overcomes those limitations. Sure. So the chromaticity plot, as you say, plots color without lumen. So it really was designed for specifying uh, illumination sources, light sources, rather than color reproduction. Um, however, our vision, A, isn't absolute in color. It's relative in color and is relative in luminance. You know, um, a yellow and a brown would have the same point in chromaticity space, but they're clearly different colors. We perceive them differently. So no matter how you plot it, we're used to three dimensions of color, RGB, HSL, um, um, the many, many variants of that. Uh, so the XY chart was fine when you have the assumption of additivity and you know what your white point is. You can work out how much red, how much green, and how much blue you need to make the white. So the chromaticity plot then works. But as soon as you add in extra subpixels, for example, or more complicated drive schemes, it no longer holds. You can't make that assumption anymore. So it, it, it can be very, very misleading. I mean, in the worst case, on the bulk analysis, which we did, we saw uh, some displays could be a factor three or four difference in color gamut volume for the same chromaticity area. Wow. So the gamut rings plot, what it does is you imagine slicing C-Lab into 10 slices, starting at L star of 10, going up in steps of 10 to 100. 100 is a maximum in C-Lab space. 
then what you do is you flat squish each of those rings to make a, a flat top and you maintain the hue angle as you're doing this. And then you start with the lowest ring, lay that flat, the next one you stretch around it, and the next one you stretch around that and that until you get the last one. The areas are exactly proportional to the C-Lab gamut volume. So the outer ring encloses the area uh, of the total display gamut, and each ring encloses the area of the gamut up to the L-star value that ring represents. So, for example, you can not only tell how much color a display can reproduce in total, the total color gamut volume, you can see by the spacing of the rings at what luminances, or at least what lightnesses, uh, that color can be reproduced. So, you know, if the, if the L-star 80 ring is almost on top of the L-star 70 ring, there's not many colors between 70 and 80. If they're far apart, then there's lots of colors between those L-star values. So, um, that's a really helpful explanation. Let's uh, look at a practical application of it. For instance, if we're looking at, a, at content that has colors that are both bright and saturated, like let's say we're looking at fireworks or uh, a volcano nature scene or yeah. any, there's, there's tons of CGI content these days that with, with content that's both bright and saturated. How does your work help display metrologists understand the capability of the display? So if you, at a glance, you can just look at the spacings of the rings. So if you care about colors at the very brightest luminances, at the top end of the display's capability, you're looking at colors at the top end of the lightness scale, the CLAB lightness scale. And you just look at the spacings of those outer rings. If there's lots of space between the outer rings, then you know there's lots of color capability there. Now, the plot does not tell you exactly what colors it can reproduce, but what it does do, because of volume, there's not many displays you can't produce the gray line up the middle. And so volume tends to extend from the center. So generally, the wider apart one of the rings, the more capability the display will have to display saturated colors in that band. And I, I think it's quite remarkable because in the paper, you've shown some images where if you only look at the 2D plot, it looks as though there's quite a bit of color capability, uh, but that chromaticity range becomes quite limited as you get to the higher uh, uh, luminance levels. Um, so there's a bunch of information there revealed that you wouldn't otherwise see. Uh, that's one of the things that, that I found to be uh, very revealing uh, based on your work and, and that of your co-authors. Um, another thing that you had mentioned earlier was uh, hue angles. So what about the alignment of hue angles and, and their consistency over the range of different luminance levels? So the hue angles are maintained between C-Lab and the gamut rings plot. So if you want to know uh, what the color capability is of a particular hue angle say in the blue, you just look at that same angle on the gamut rings plot and you just look at how far apart the subsequent uh, gamut rings are from each other as you go up through the light scale. So you can I, I, see if they're far apart at the bottom, you've got lots of color capability there, not so much at the top or the other way around. I've also seen some plots of, of real displays that were measured where the hue angle uh, did not align. For example, peak red uh, based on uh, the CIE chart, but the peak red of that display uh, is not on axis uh, with uh, the C-Lab red. Uh, so that's, uh, that's also revealing. Uh, do you maintain uh, trueness, if you will, of color or accuracy of color uh, 
as the luminance level changes. Yeah. Well, after decades of evaluating color capability using 1931 and 1976 uh, chromaticity charts, I can say that your work and the work of your co-authors along with the uh, uh, great work of Dr. Masaoka, uh, they've totally changed the way that color evaluation can be done and should be done. And so I'm wondering if you think that the 1931 and 1976 uh, coordinate charts will eventually be replaced with 3D color representations. For the purpose of evaluating display performance, I hope so. A chromaticity plot is still useful for characterizing the color of different emitters or evaluating the potential of a given set of subpixel colors. But the potential is the important word here because the, the gap is that you know, a display engineer may have these three emitters to choose to make a display or these three uh, color profiles. But it's up to them whether they then add a white pixel or other colored pixels or whether how they then adjust the uh, gamma curves uh, how they uh, pick the white point and so forth. So the chromaticity plot can show you potential and help you choose, but in terms of actually evaluating the performance of a real display, you have to use something better. A C-Lab is a recommended uh, space in which to do so, and the gamut rings makes interpreting C-Lab a lot easier. Okay, well, more generally, uh, we have a broad audience here. I, I wonder what you feel is the most exciting advance you've seen uh, in your technology in the past year. Uh, I mean, uh, so I mean, the technology I'm mostly involved in these days is a lot of web technologies and things like that. So I'm I'm excited about being able to you know compile complex maths to run in the browser. But you know, many people are not necessarily going to be particularly excited by that. I think in the past few years, and particularly because you know I was working on OLED technology for eleven years. And the thing we had projects working on from day one, from 2000 right up to 2011 when I stopped working on it, was flexible displays. We always knew that was going to be possible. And, you know, people see flexible displays now reaching fruition, but it's been a very, very, very long journey to get there. It, there's so many technical challenges. And I was involved in some work trying to overcome various ones of those technical challenges. So actually, the thing I'm really pleased to see is that finally making it way into production. Small volume, to be sure, to begin with. It'll take a while to scale it up, I would think. But there's, there's so much technology went into making a flexible OLED. I'm, I'm with you all the way there. I was uh, working at Samsung over in Korea uh, uh, from 2009 through 2011. That was really my focus, was on uh, flexible and uh, so many different technologies are involved in making that work. Um, what, what do you think uh, is the biggest challenge facing the display industry these days? It's a little hard for me to answer being a little bit outside the display industry, but from the outside, I would suspect it's going to be the same challenge of many industries, which is to meet the challenges of climate change. You know, energy efficiency of displays, low carbon production, reuse, recycling, you know, all of that is going to take increasing importance as time goes on. Okay. Um, you're an entrepreneur, so are there any stories or lessons you would like to share uh, with an entrepreneur getting started based on your journey in growing Captivo? Well, I mean, 
as you will have gathered from the initial discussion, it wasn't exactly a, a straight line from starting point to where we got to. And a lot of successful companies do not end up being successful with the thing they started with. So I think you've got to be somewhat humble in that you might be wrong, but get a really good group of people around you, do things early, get out of the lab, get them in front of customers as early as you can, and find out as quickly as you can if you're going along the right lines or not. And if you're not, don't be afraid to change direction. Uh, from a guy who's been there uh, on the spot. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll ask a final question here. I, I just wonder if there's anything that you'd like to see at future SID conferences. Oh, I, I mean, I just love lots of new tech. Uh, as much opportunities for small startup wacky companies or research groups or whatever to actually go and show their stuff. Not just present papers, but, you know, uh, you, big companies, lots of glitzy stuff. It's great. Good to see the new technology. But the thing I always head for is the, is the zone with all the, the new stuff, the off-the-wall stuff, the things which might just spark an idea in a different direction. That, that's what I really like. Ah, the iZone, yes. Yeah. Um, well, it's been fantastic having you here today. Uh, thanks again, Ewan, for being uh, a part of our show. And uh, for now, that's a wrap uh, from Display Week 2020. And uh, you and I look forward to seeing you again in the near future. It's been a pleasure, Brian. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks so much.